You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad you're here today. How many of you guys got rain yesterday? Anybody? Oh, it rained at my house. It was glorious. I called my wife. I called my, a text my friends. Um, it felt like I'd never seen rain before. It was, uh, it was great. If you didn't get rain yesterday, sorry about that. Um, maybe next time. Um, glad you're here today. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Mark's Gospel, kind of working verse by verse, chapter by chapter since February. Uh, I do want you to know that we have two more weeks in Mark. We're going to get to the end of chapter 9 and push pause. Uh, I'll be telling you more in the coming weeks about what we'll be doing for the fall, but we're going to push pause on Mark's Gospel, and then we'll pick it back up next year in 2023 uh, when we get into the season of Lent. We'll walk with Jesus all the way to the cross uh, in 2023 with the rest of Mark's gospel. So we have two weeks left. And uh, the, really the first part of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been, or Mark has been building, showing us Jesus, his essential actions, his most important words. And he's been asking the question, who is he? Like, you have to decide who is Jesus. And so we've, we've gone to the source and we're trying to make a decision about who is Jesus. Will we trust him? Will we entrust our lives to him? Will we follow him? Will we keep following him? Will we crown him as king? And in our text today, Peter, James, and John are given a glimpse of Jesus' glory. It's an amazing text. The, the transfiguration is what it's called. It's in, it's in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We get it in each of those gospel accounts. It's an amazing text where these three get a glimpse of Jesus' glory. And if you're taking notes today, here's kind of the, the three main things that we'll see. It's a glimpse of Jesus' glory that one makes his cross much, much more stunning it makes his cross so much more stunning. Number two, his call, it makes his call to discipleship more compelling. And three, it reminds us of where all of this is headed, where this life is headed. And so those are the three things. Let's pray and we'll get back into the text. Almighty God, we do simply pray and ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would shine your grace and your truth upon our hearts through your word this morning, that you would help us to see you in your glory who you are, the God and the King of all glorious grace. Would we receive that today? Would we see you more clearly and live in light of your glory and grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to walk back through the text, and then we'll land with those three points that I just gave you. Let's start back, Mark 9, starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Stop for a minute. Most scholars would agree that this is the fulfillment of chapter 9, verse 1. You remember that from last week? Jesus had, uh, Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ. It's this pinnacle moment in Mark's gospel. You are the Christ. They're finally seeing him clearly. And then Jesus drops a bomb on them. He says, yeah, you're right. And the Christ must be rejected and must suffer and must die and must be raised again. And this trips wires for Peter. This was not their expectation of who Jesus or who the Christ, what the Messiah would be. They were expecting an earthly king that would that kind of give them earthly victory and earthly comfort and earthly status. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not why I've come. And then he tells them, if you're going to keep following me, if anyone is going to come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. You must also die to yourself and your earthly hopes and agendas 
and take up your cross and follow me. If you remember that. And then in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says to them, there are some of you who are standing here today who will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power. And so most scholars would agree that what's happening here is Jesus takes them up the mountain to get a glimpse of his glory is the fulfillment of that promise that he makes in chapter 9, verse 1. There are some of them who are about to see the true nature of Jesus and get a glimpse of his glory and of his coming kingdom. And I want you to think about this from the disciples' perspective. For the last six days, they've been grappling with what they've heard from Jesus. I want you to think about the side conversations that they've probably been having over the last six days. Maybe some of you have had moments in your life, perhaps you're there now, where uh, there's just some tension, right? You're sitting in some tension. You're not sure where to go or what's going to happen or um, what God's will is for you. you. You're sitting in some tension. They've certainly been sitting in, in some tension. They've been having side conversations, I'm sure. I'm sure that the crowds, the massive crowds that have been following Jesus have thinned out since Jesus has said, if you're going to keep following me, you too must walk the path of crucifixion. Uh, they knew something about Roman crucifixion. I imagine they think, wait a second, this guy's lost it. Uh, and the crowds have thinned out. The disciples are probably counting the cost on their own. Am I going to keep following him? Or are we going to keep trusting him? And then a week later, Jesus invites these three men up the mountain with him. Um, a day trip up Mount Hermon, which was the, the closest mountain to uh, Caesarea Philippi. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know that uh, there, there have been some mountaintop glorious moments throughout uh, the scriptures, throughout God's work, right? What comes to mind when you think about the glory of God being revealed in the mountains? Obviously, you think about Moses. And when God calls Moses up Mount Sinai and he reveals his glory to Moses, perhaps you think about Elijah and Elijah, how he encounters the glory of God as he calls down fire on Mount Carmel. Uh, there's another moment where God calls Moses up the mountain and he speaks to him in a whisper. It seems that the mountain is a sacred place where God does some pretty amazing, incredible things throughout the story of the Bible. And Jesus has stepped into this as well, right? Jesus appoints and calls the 12 disciples where? In the valley, near the sea? No, in the mountaintops, Jesus appoints the 12. Jesus kind of gives his reinterpretation or uh, his way of fulfilling Moses' law in his famous sermon on the mount. Yeah, Jesus has embraced this. And here's another moment, kind of following this, uh, this you're the Christ. Yes, you're right, I'm the Christ, and I must suffer and die and be raised. They're struggling with it. They're sitting in the tension of it. And then Jesus calls him up the mountain to reveal his glory, to give them a, a glimpse of his glory, the text tells us that he was transfigured before them. What does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus was transfigured? Matthew, in his gospel, adds a little bit of detail that Mark doesn't give us. Matthew says that Jesus' face shines like the sun. His face is, is shining like the sun. He's transfigured before them. Mark tells us that whatever this is that's happening to Jesus in their midst, that it causes even his plain and ordinary clothes, right? So his, his human face is shining with glory and his plain and ordinary human clothes, he says, become radiant, in verse three, intensely white, that no one on earth could bleach them. Something of a, of a metamorphosis is happening to Jesus. It's, there is something other, something beautiful, something glorious that is pushing through the plain human body of Jesus. 
Even as clothes are impacted, they are, the, 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 the language, it's, it's literally, they are hot white. They are hot white, intensely white in a way that no laundry detergent could ever imagine producing, you know? My wife is always trying to get baseball pants white again, and she has bought every possible laundry detergent from bars to liquids to, I mean, all kind of stuff to try and get baseball pants white again. Jesus' clothes are hot, holy white. That's the picture. See, in this moment, the disciples get a glimpse of Jesus' true glory. They get a brief look at the true nature of Christ. And there are two things here. There are two things that I think are important that we recognize. One, in getting a glimpse of Jesus' true glory in this moment, what they are seeing and what we are hearing, they're really seeing what the incarnation of Christ has veiled. I want you to think of it that way. In seeing the true nature, the glory of Jesus pushing through the plain, uh, the plain humanness of his clothes and of his body, they are actually getting a glimpse at what the incarnation of Christ has veiled, what the taking on of flesh. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus came in the form of a servant. He took on the form of servanthood, that he lowered himself, that he take on, took on the form of human likeness, that his becoming human in order to serve us and save us veiled his true nature, veiled the fullness of his glory. And so what these three disciples are seeing in this moment, they get a little glimpse, a little preview. What they are seeing is they are really seeing Jesus reassuming what he always has been and what he always will be. One commentator that I read this week said this. He says, in a way, we are actually wrong in calling this the transfiguration of Jesus. We're actually wrong in calling it that. It's not really the a transformation or a metamorphosis. He says, he says we're wrong in calling it that as if this is unique. He says the true transfiguration had already taken place at Bethlehem when God took on human form, when Jesus was born. That was the true metamorphosis, the true transformation. Jesus is essentially giving them a glimpse of his divine nature, of his true glory. The second thing that we see in this, in this moment is we're actually also getting a glimpse into what this earthly life, this physical earthly life often veils for us. In this moment, Jesus is opening our eyes to see that there is more going on around us than the physical eyes can see. Uh, in other words, there's, there's another dimension. There is a spiritual realm that exists that the physical eyes, that we, especially as flat Westerners, people who think that we're just brains on a stick, we know we're more than that. But as flat Westerners, we often can't uh, imagine anything but the physical. And Jesus is showing us what this physical world actually veils. So there's another dimension. There's a spiritual realm, a, a heavenly realm. And in this moment, that spiritual realm, that spiritual dimension, it's like a portal is being opened. I know you're thinking about stranger things right now. It's like a portal is being opened, and it is coming crashing into the physical, into the earthly. It, um, it, it actually reminds me of my wife and I went to, um, to a, we were in San Diego on a trip several years ago. And we went to this really cool restaurant, and we were sitting there at the table, and all of a sudden, the bookcase that was two tables behind us opens, and it, there was a hidden bar. I was like, whoa! You know, like, you know it's that, that thought of like pulling the book off the shelf, and like this other existence opens, where like there are these elite people that are like back there, and they're having their fun, and they're doing their thing, and us ordinance are like over here, you know? And you're like, how do I get in there? 
Some of you are thinking like uh, Chronicles of Narnia might have been a better illustration than a hidden bar. But either way, uh, either way, they both work. Jesus is showing us here that there is this other place. There is this other existence that is parallel to this other place, this other existence that is and always has been beyond this earthly world. And guess what? It is glorious. It is weighty. It's marked by beauty and splendor. Human words can't even quite describe it. I'm imagining Peter later following Jesus' resurrection and ascension telling this story, and he's having trouble with human words to even explain it, like bright, radiant, hot, intense. Oh, Moses and Elijah are there. There's this other existence. It ought to evoke wonder and awe and fear. See, in this moment, the disciples of Jesus are pulled up into the glory of Jesus. They get a glimpse of his divine nature, of who it is that he truly is and who he will always be. And we should ask ourselves the question, why? What is it meant to teach us? What is it meant to teach them? And to answer that question, we have to ponder why Jesus invites them up into his glory and to view him having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. What's it meant to teach us? Why are Moses and Elijah there? Well, who are Moses and Elijah? What did they represent in God's story, in God's work in the world? Good question. I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. They, they are two of Israel's biggest heroes. They are men through whom God has worked in seismic ways, moving the story of redemption forward in the world through Moses God worked to set his people free from slavery and from bondage. Do you, do you hear the whispers of the gospel there? Do you hear that? Through Moses, God worked to set his people free from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He led God's people out of lives as slaves and into lives of freedom and victory. Through, through Moses, God revealed himself and shown his glory to his people. Through Moses, God came and dwelt among his people through first tabernacle and then later giving his presence in the temple. Do you hear the gospel themes there? What about through Elijah? Through Elijah, God worked to purify his people and cleanse his land. So if you fast forward from the days of Moses, generations and get to the days of Elijah, Israel had become an idolatrous people. They had become a sinful people. They had become a, 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 an idol-worshiping people. They they had filled God's land with, with bales, and it's through Elijah that God shows his preeminent power over all idolatry. He cleanses the land. He rids them of their religious emptiness. They were just giving lip service to God while worshiping created things. Through Elijah, God works to purify his people and his land and rid his people and his land of wickedness and of evil. Do you hear gospel themes there? And so here is Jesus blazing in glory, chatting it up in a hidden bar of sorts with these faithful saints of old, and he's demonstrating clearly that he is greater, that he's greater. It's teaching us that Moses and Elijah, that they were simply pointers to the, to the Christ, that they existed to show us and to point to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is the greater. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. See, the law had their point. The law revealed God's character and nature to God's people, but really what the law did is it just revealed our sinfulness. The law couldn't save us from our sin, can it? 
What about the prophets? The prophets, they played an important role in God's people. They called God's people to turn around. They pointed God's people to truth and to righteousness. But the prophets couldn't cleanse us of our righteousness. They, They couldn't give us righteousness. But what about Jesus? What about him? That's the point. He's the more glorious one. He's the greater Moses. He's the true prophet. He's the one who would once and for all set God's people free from slavery and bondage who could purify and cleanse a people and produce a righteousness from the inside out. Jesus is saying, this is why I have come. I am the true Moses. I am the greater Elijah. I've come to suffer and die and be raised so that God's people, so that a people could once and for all be forgiven and could be cleansed, so that sin's penalty could be defeated and sin's power could be overcome once and for all. In fact, uh, Luke tells us in 931, like if, if you want to know that Moses and Elijah were simply pointers to the greater work of Christ, Luke tells us when he gives us this scene in 931, he says, he tells us that what they're talking about, right? Mark tells us that he, Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. Luke says that they're talking about Jesus' departure. Think about that for a minute. Moses and Elijah, these saints of old, we, they come crashing into the physical and we get this like, glory heaven chat where they're essentially saying, Jesus, is it finished yet? Have you done it yet? Have you fulfilled God's plan of salvation and redemption for the world and for God's people? Is it time to come back yet? That is stunning. It's an amazing detail that Luke gives us. And so here we have Peter, James, and John momentarily pulled up into Jesus' glory so that they could see how Jesus' cross is linked to Jesus' glory. How the the, the cross is the key to the crown. How the king of glory has come to suffer and die for sinners and be raised. Now, it's clear that they don't understand this lesson uh, immediately. In fact, they probably don't understand this lesson until later, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, Verse 5 Uh, and six make it clear that they don't understand this lesson immediately. Look back at verse five. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You would be too. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, Listen to him. Now, verse 7 is the thrust of this text, but I love verse 6. I love verse 6. It makes me smile. Um, Mark gives us this detail. Mark gives us this commentary. Uh, and, 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 I, and when you read verse 6, I mean, it is comment. It's not narrative. Verse 5 is narrative, and then verse 6 is Mark's commentary. Like he's trying to explain why Peter would say something so stupid. Uh, uh, he was afraid. He didn't know what to say. Um, and it makes me just, I just imagine like later following the resurrection and the ascension, and Jesus tells them in this text not to say anything until after he's raised about this. And, and I'm just imagining them telling this story later, maybe to the others, to the other disciples. And, and Peter's talking about the holiness and the glory of God and how they were pulled up into this. And there's this conversation between Jesus and he's greater and he's more glorious than Moses and Elijah. And they're actually asking him, when is the work finished and when will you return? And and, uh, and the others are listening, and they're like, wow, what did you guys do? You know, and maybe James or John, like, blurt out. And they're like, well, 
listen to what Peter said. <laughs> you know, like Peter, it's well documented that Peter is a put his foot in his mouth kind of guy. Um, which, by the way, if the apostles were making all of this stuff up, uh, they, they, would never, they would never be this honest about their faults, you know? I mean, this is Peter's gospel, and he's giving you his own, uh, he's giving you his own uh, uh, stupidity. Uh, I mean, Peter is basically, Peter's basically doesn't know what to do, and so he just blurts something out, like, this is amazing. We're in your glory. Let's tabernacle here. That's, what, that's essentially what he's saying. Let's make tents. Let's tabernacle. Moses and Elijah, let's all hang out and stay in this glory. Let's not have to go back into that earthly, to that physical. And, uh, and, I, and I'm just imagining them telling the story, and, and James and John ride him out, and Peter's just like, I was afraid. I didn't know what to say, guys. You know? and, and, that, and verse 7 makes it clear. It makes it clear that they weren't to say or do anything. That's not why they were there. Jesus invites them up the mountain to simply listen and learn. That they were there to take note of the glory of Jesus and to hear the audible voice of the Father calling them to trust and obey him. You know, the, the, the voice of the Father speaks at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. And then now again, here we have the voice of the Father speaking, right, as Jesus prepares to take his journey to the cross. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. It's really that simple. I don't have a lot of exegesis to give you on, ver- on verse 7. It's really that simple. These disciples who for six days have been grappling with God's will, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, Roman crucifixion, denying ourselves, putting aside our agendas, embracing Jesus' agenda, are we going to do it? Are we going to keep following him? Is it worth it? They are given a simple message, a simple word from God. God is essentially in a very simple way saying to Peter and James and John, you don't have to understand everything. You don't need to know everything. To Peter, I'm not asking you to control everything. Jesus is my beloved son, and he has come to accomplish my purposes for you. Listen to him. Trust him. Obey him. Surrender to him. And I'm certain that there are some of us who are here this morning that also need to hear that word, that very simple exhortation from a loving God, that perhaps there is some tension in your life right now, perhaps you are sitting in some unknown, your future is unclear, maybe it feels up in the air, maybe there's a lot of hard going on in your life right now. Some of you need to hear this. This is my beloved son given for you. He's come for you. Look to him. Listen to him. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to control everything. You don't need to understand everything. See his glory. See who he is and see the glorious Christ given for you. Embrace his grace. Trust him for your daily bread. Listen to him. He loves you. He's given himself for you. It's a powerful word from the Father. And then verse 8. Suddenly looking around. They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Jesus plainly is how that could be rendered. The mountaintop moment is over. The secret bar is closed. They're back with the ordinance, ordinary life, plain Jesus in human form. Will they trust him? Will they listen to him? Will they keep following him? On the way back down the mountain, they are trying to make sense of all of it. It's clear in verses 11 and 12. Verse 13, 
Jesus is certainly walking in front of them. That's what rabbis did. Disciples followed behind. Jesus is leading them back down the mountain. Um, they're trying to make sense of, uh, of what they've just seen and heard. We're told that, that they're trying to sort out what this raising from the dead might mean. We're trying to make sense of it. We're told that they're wondering if he's truly the Messiah. Like they're starting to believe it, right? They've just seen his glory. And they've seen what he's been doing, and they're connecting the dots, and they're trying to make sense of it, but then they're going, well, what about all that stuff that the scribes have been saying about Elijah must come first? And Jesus essentially answers that in verse 12. He basically tells them in verse 12, the role of Elijah has already been fulfilled. John the Baptist has come preparing the way, and you see what they did to John the Baptist. They beheaded him. The Son of Man must suffer many things. This is the way. He's essentially telling them everything is happening just as God has promised. You and the smart guy, scribes and others just haven't had eyes to see it. Your eyes have been veiled, but now you've been given a glimpse. You've been given a glimpse of Jesus' glory. And I believe that his disciples, I believe that this glimpse that they've gotten is what kept his disciples following him. I really do. I believe it's what sustained their faith and helped them to endure with Jesus. You see, getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory, seeing him as he truly is, being reminded of his true nature, it changes things for us. It changes things for us. Three things. When we consider the true glory of Jesus. The, the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's an incredible claim. He says he upholds Jesus, the, the radiance of the glory of God, the, the imprint of his nature, God in human form. He upholds the world by the word of his power. He says, after making purifications for sin, then he sits down at the right hand of God. What a big, glorious view of Jesus. And when we get a glimpse of Jesus in this glorious way, first thing it does is it makes the work of the cross so much more stunning to us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean... The glory, the God of all glory, the fact that he would not only come near to us, but that he would suffer and die for you and for me. That he would pay the price for all of our sins, that he would literally bleed out so that our sins could be atoned for. He would satisfy the wrath of God for my worst and your worst. This is stunning. He would cover all of our failures. The God of radiant glory suffering and dying for you and me. What a glorious Savior. When we get a glimpse of the glory of God, as we do in the text today, it, it also makes his call to discipleship that much more compelling. In other words, we're not following some religious rando whose body is still in the ground. We are following the God of all glory, the risen Christ, makes his call that much more stunning. He's the way, the truth, the life. We get to listen to him. <laughs> we get to trust him and obey him. It's an honor to follow the risen Christ. It's not a duty. What a savior we have, a glorious risen savior that calls us by his grace alone to know him and follow him. And when we get a glimpse of his glory, when we are reminded of who he really is, this true nature, we, we get a better sense of where this world is headed, where this whole thing is headed. You see, this world will pass away, 
but the glory of Christ will remain forever. These bodies that we are living in, they are decaying. (laughs) Moment by moment, year by year, these bodies are perishing. Um, The scriptures tell us that life is a vapor. Like, Like our life is like the morning dew. Think of it this way. Your great, great grandchildren probably won't even know your name. Yet the glory of Christ endures forever. The glory of Christ, the risen Christ says that if you are in him, that he has written your name in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus calls us into eternal glory. You know that desire that Peter had to throw up some tents, tents and kind of camp and hang for a while? That speaks, doesn't it? Because that's where this whole thing is headed if you are in Christ Jesus. When Christ comes again, he's coming in glory and he will either judge, you will either be judged under the weight of his glory or you will be welcomed by his grace into his glory. And that outcome, it all depends upon how you view the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Will you listen to him? Will you see him for who he truly is, the God of glory and grace? Will you receive him by faith? You see, that's the question of Mark's gospel. What will you do with cross and glory? What will you do with Jesus? We're going to take a moment. In a minute, we're going to respond as we always do each week. The band's going to come and they'll play a couple of songs. Pastor Rick's going to lead us through communion like we we do each week. The altar will be open. We'll have time to, to pray and to respond, to turn to Jesus. And as we do, I just want to remind you of two things that I think are true and that are evident in this text. That's no matter what you're going through today, no matter how you've come into this place, no matter how disconnected, distant you might feel from God, no matter what doubts or sin or sufferings you might be experiencing, no matter how you came into this place, hear this. The God of all glory is accessible to you. The God of all glory is come near to us. Jesus has come down the mountain offering grace and mercy. I want to just encourage you, would you turn to him this morning? The accessible God of all glory and grace, would you turn to him this morning? Would you confess sin to him this morning? Would you admit need to him this morning? Would you turn to him for strength where you feel weak this morning? And then secondly, no no matter how you've come in here, no matter what doubts or struggles or or what space you might be in as you enter this place this morning, I just want to remind you, not only is he accessible, but he's worth it. That Jesus is so worth it. Denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus will not disappoint you in the end. Jesus will come again, and when he does, he will bring the fullness of his infinite glory on earth as it is in heaven. The hidden bar will be no more. It will take over this earth, and his glory will remain. And the scriptures are clear that those who have listened to him, who have received his grace, who have trusted him, will be with him forever. Following Jesus is so worth it. Spurgeon famously said, he said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers here below. Taking up your cross and following Jesus, it is worth it. Church family, he's accessible and he's worth it. Let's turn to him together. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word teaches us, how it opens our eyes to what's true and real. And most importantly, we thank you for how your word reveals to us Jesus. What a gift, what a glorious Savior we have in Christ Jesus. 
I pray that as we respond to you now, Lord, that, um, that you would meet us right where we are, that you would nourish us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us. I pray that we would experience and taste your presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've come down the mountain to dwell among us, offering us grace and mercy. Help us to follow you wholeheartedly, that we would see you as worth it and worthy of all of our heart's affection, all of our obedience, all of our life. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.